This is Chapter 19 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 19 The Deadly Jest of Dillsburg. However, I wander from the raft. We made the port of Neckar Steinach in good season and went to the hotel and ordered a trout dinner the same to be ready against our return from a two-hour pedestrian excursion to the village and castle of Dillsburg, a mile distant, on the other side of the river. I do not mean that we proposed to be two hours making two miles. No, we meant to employ most of the time in inspecting Dillsburg. For Dillsburg is a quaint place. It is most quaintly and picturesquely situated, too. Imagine the beautiful river before you then a few rods of brilliant greensward on its opposite shore, then a sudden hill, no preparatory gently rising slopes, but a sort of instantaneous hill, a hill two hundred and fifty or three hundred feet high, as round as a bowl, with the same taper upward that an inverted bowl has, and with about the same relation of height to diameter that distinguishes a bowl of good honest depth, a hill which is thickly clothed with green bushes, a comely, shapely hill, rising abruptly out of the dead level of the surrounding green plains, visible from a great distance down the bends of the river, and with just exactly room on the top of its head for its steepled and turreted and roof-clustered cap of architecture, which same is tightly jammed and compacted within the perfectly round hoop of the ancient village wall. There is no house outside the wall on the whole hill, or any vestige of a former house, all the houses are inside the wall, but there isn't room for another one. It is really a finished town, and has been finished a very long time. There is no space between the wall and the first circle of buildings. No, the village wall is itself the rear wall of the first circle of buildings, and the roofs jut a little over the wall and thus furnish it with eaves. The general level of the massed roofs is gracefully broken and relieved by the dominating towers of the ruined castle and the tall spires of a couple of churches. So from a distance Dillsburg has rather more the look of a king's crown than a cap. That lofty green eminence and its quaint coronet form quite a striking picture, you may be sure, in the flush of the evening sun. We crossed over in a boat and began the ascent by a narrow, steep path which plunged us at once into the leafy deeps of the bushes. But they were not cool deeps by any means, for the sun's rays were weltering hot, and there was little or no breeze to temper them. As we panted up the sharp ascent, we met brown, bareheaded, and barefooted boys and girls occasionally, and sometimes men. They came upon us without warning. They gave us good day, flashed out of sight in the bushes, and were gone as suddenly and mysteriously as they had come. They were bound for the other side of the river to work. This path had been traveled by many generations of these people. They have always gone down to the valley to earn their bread, but they have always climbed their hill again to eat it, and to sleep in their snug town. It is said that the Dillsburgers do not emigrate much. They find that living up there above the world in their peaceful nest is pleasanter than living down in the troublous world. The seven hundred inhabitants are all blood-kin to each other, too. They have always been blood-kin to each other for fifteen hundred years. They are simply one large family, and they like the home folks better than they like strangers, hence they persistently stay at home. It has been said that for ages Dillsburg has been merely a thriving and diligent idiot factory. 
Well, I saw no idiots there, but the captain said, "'Because of late years the government has taken to lugging them off to asylums and otherwheres, and government wants to cripple the factory, too, and is trying to get these Dillsburgers to marry out of the family, but they don't like to.' The captain probably imagined all this, as modern science denies that the intermarrying of relatives deteriorates the stock. Arrived within the wall, we found the usual village sights and life. We moved along a narrow, crooked lane, which had been paved in the Middle Ages. A strapping, ruddy girl was beating flax or some such stuff in a little bit of a good box of a barn, and she swung her flail with a will, if it was a flail. I was not farmer enough to know what she was at. A frowsy, bare-legged girl was herding half a dozen geese with a stick, driving them along the lane and keeping them out of the dwellings. A cooper was at work in a shop, which I know he did not make so large a thing as a hogshead in, for there was not room. In the front rooms of dwellings, girls and women were cooking or spinning, and ducks and chickens were waddling in and out over the threshold picking up chance crumbs and holding pleasant converse. A very old and wrinkled man sat asleep before his door, with his chin upon his breast and his extinguished pipe in his lap. Soiled children were playing in the dirt everywhere along the lane, unmindful of the sun. Except the sleeping old man, everybody was at work, but the place was very still and peaceful nevertheless, so still that the distant cackle of the successful hen smote upon the ear but little dulled by intervening sounds. That commonest of village sights was lacking here, the public pump, with its great stone tank or trough of limpid water, and its group of gossiping pitcher-bearers, for there is no well or fountain or spring on this tall hill. Cisterns of rain-water are used. Our alpenstocks and muslin tails compelled attention, and as we moved through the village we gathered a considerable procession of little boys and girls, and so went in some state to the castle. It proved to be an extensive pile of crumbling walls, arches, and towers, massive, properly grouped for picturesque effect, weedy, grass-grown, and satisfactory. The children acted as guides. They walked us along the top of the highest walls, then took us up into a high tower and showed us a wide and beautiful landscape, made up of wavy distances of woody hills, and a nearer prospect of undulating expanses of green lowlands on the one hand, and castle-graced crags and ridges on the other, with the shining curves of the Neckar flowing between. But the principal show, the chief pride of the children, was the ancient and empty well in the grass-grown court of the castle. Its massive stone curb stands up three or four feet above ground, and is whole and uninjured. The children said that in the Middle Ages this well was four hundred feet deep, and furnished all the village with an abundant supply of water in war and peace. They said that in the old day its bottom was below the level of the Neckar, hence the water supply was inexhaustible. But there were some who believed it had never been a well at all and was never deeper than it is now, eighty feet, that at that depth a subterranean passage branched from it and descended gradually to a remote place in the valley where it opened into somebody's cellar or other hidden recess, and that the secret of this locality is now lost. Those who hold this belief say that herein lies the explanation that Dillsburg, besieged by Tilly and many a soldier before him, was never taken. After the longest and closest sieges, 
the besiegers were astonished to perceive that the besieged were as fat and hearty as ever and were well furnished with munitions of war therefore it must be that the dillsburgers had been bringing these things in through the subterranean passage all the time the children said that there was in truth a subterranean outlet down there and they would prove it so they set a great truss of straw on fire and threw it down the well while we leaned on the curb and watched the glowing mass descend it struck bottom and gradually burned out no smoke came up the children clapped their hands and said you see nothing makes so much smoke as burning straw now where did the smoke go to if there is no subterranean outlet so it seemed quite evident that the subterranean outlet indeed existed but the finest thing within the ruins limits was a noble linden which the children said was four hundred years old and no doubt it was it had a mighty trunk and a mighty spread of limb and foliage the limbs near the ground were nearly the thickness of a barrel that tree had witnessed the assaults of men in mail how remote such a time seems and how ungraspable is the fact that real men ever did fight in real armor and it had seen the time when these broken arches and crumbling battlements were a trim and strong and stately fortress fluttering its gay banners in the sun and peopled with vigorous humanity how impossibly long ago that seems and here it stands yet and possibly may still be standing here sunning itself and dreaming its historical dreams when to-day shall have been joined to the days called ancient well we sat down under the tree to smoke and the captain delivered himself of his legend the legend of dillsburg castle it was to this effect in the old times there was once a great company assembled at the castle and festivity ran high of course there was a haunted chamber in the castle and one day the talk fell upon that it was said that whoever slept in it would not wake again for fifty years now when a young knight named conrad von geisberg heard this he said that if the castle were his he would destroy that chamber so that no foolish person might have the chance to bring so dreadful a misfortune upon himself and afflict such as loved him with the memory of it straightway the company privately laid their heads together to contrive some way to get this superstitious young man to sleep in that chamber and they succeeded in this way they persuaded his betrothed a lovely mischievous young creature niece of the lord of the castle to help them in their plot she presently took him aside and had speech with him she used all her persuasions but could not shake him he said his belief was firm that if he should sleep there he would wake no more for fifty years and it made him shudder to think of it katharina began to weep this was a better argument conrad could not hold out against it he yielded and said she should have her wish if she would only smile and be happy again she flung her arms about his neck and the kisses she gave him showed that her thankfulness and her pleasure were very real then she flew to tell the company her success and the applause she received made her glad and proud she had undertaken her mission since all alone she had accomplished what the multitude had failed in at midnight that night after the usual feasting conrad was taken to the haunted chamber and left there he fell asleep by and by when he awoke again and looked about him his heart stood still with horror the whole aspect of the chamber was changed the walls were mouldy and hung with ancient cobwebs the curtains and beddings were rotten the furniture was rickety and ready to fall to pieces he sprang out of bed 
but his quaking knees sunk under him, and he fell to the floor. This is the weakness of age, he said. He rose and sought his clothing. It was clothing no longer. The colors were gone. The garments gave way in many places while he was putting them on. He fled, shuddering, into the corridor and along it to the great hall. Here he was met by a middle-aged stranger of a kind countenance who stopped and gazed at him with surprise. Conrad said, "'Good sir, will you send hither the Lord Ulrich?' The stranger looked puzzled a moment, then said, "'The Lord Ulrich? Yes, if you will be so good.' The stranger called him Wilhelm. A young serving-man came, and the stranger said to him, "'Is there a Lord Ulrich among the guests?' "'I know none of the name, so please your honor,' Conrad said hesitatingly. "'I did not mean a guest, but the lord of the castle, sir.' The stranger and the servant exchanged wondering glances, and then the former said, "'I am the lord of the castle.' "'Since when, sir?' "'Since the death of my father, the good lord Ulrich, more than forty years ago.' Conrad sank upon a chest and covered his face with his hands while he rocked his body to and fro and moaned. The stranger said in a low voice to the servant, "'I fear me this poor old creature is mad. Call someone.' In a moment several people came and grouped themselves about, talking in whispers. Conrad looked up and scanned the faces about him wistfully. Then he shook his head and said in a grieved voice, "'No, there is none among ye that I know.' I am old and alone in the world. They are dead and gone these many years that cared for me. But sure some of these aged ones I see about me can tell me some little word or two concerning them. Several bent and tottering men and women came nearer and answered his questions about each former friend as he mentioned the names. This one, they said, had been dead ten years, that one twenty, another thirty. Each succeeding blow struck heavier and heavier. At last the sufferer said, "'There is one more, but I have not the courage to—oh, my lost Katharina!' One of the old dames said, "'Ah, I knew her well, poor soul. A misfortune overtook her lover, and she died of sorrow nearly fifty years ago. She lieth under the linden-tree without the court.' Conrad bowed his head and said, "'Ah, why did I ever wake? And so she died of grief for me, poor child, so young, so sweet, so good. She never wittingly did a hurtful thing in all the little summer of her life. Her loving debt shall be repaid, for I will die of grief for her.' His head drooped upon his breast. In a moment there was a wild burst of joyous laughter, a pair of round young arms were flung about Conrad's neck, and a sweet voice cried, "'There, Conrad mine, thy kind words kill me. The farce shall go no further. Look up and laugh with us. Twas all a jest.' And he did look up and gazed in a dazed wonderment, for the disguises were stripped away, and the aged men and women were bright and young and gay again. Katharina's happy tongue ran on. "'Twas a marvellous jest, and bravely carried out. They gave you a heavy sleeping-draught before you went to bed, and in the night they bore you to a ruined chamber where all had fallen to decay, and placed these rags of clothing by you, and when your sleep was spent and you came forth, two strangers, well instructed in their parts, were here to meet you, 
and all we your friends in our disguises were close at hand to see and hear you may be sure ah twas a gallant jest come now and make thee ready for the pleasures of the day how real was thy misery for the moment thou poor lad look up and have thy laugh now he looked up searched the merry faces about him in a dreamy way then sighed and said i am aweary good strangers i pray you lead me to her grave all the smile vanished away every cheek blanched katerina sunk to the ground in a swoon all day the people went about the castle with troubled faces and communed together in undertones a painful hush pervaded the place which had lately been so full of cheery life each in his turn tried to arouse conrad out of his hallucination and bring him to himself but all the answer any got was a meek bewildered stare and then the words good stranger i have no friends all are at rest these many years ye speak me fair ye mean me well but i know ye not i am alone and forlorn in the world prithee lead me to her grave during two years conrad spent his days from the early morning till the night under the linden tree mourning over the imaginary grave of his katharina katharina was the only company of the harmless madman he was very friendly toward her because as he said in some ways she reminded him of his katharina whom he had lost fifty years ago he often said she was so gay so happy-hearted but you never smile and always when you think i am not looking you cry when conrad died they buried him under the linden according to his directions so that he might rest near his poor katharina then katharina sat under the linden alone every day and all day long a great many years speaking to no one and never smiling and at last her long repentance was rewarded with death and she was buried by conrad's side harris pleased the captain by saying it was a good legend and pleased him further by adding now that i have seen this mighty tree vigorous with its four hundred years i feel a desire to believe the legend for its sake so i will humor the desire and consider that the tree really watches over those poor hearts and feels a sort of human tenderness for them we returned to neckarsteinach plunged our hot heads into the trough at the town pump and then went to the hotel and ate our trout dinner in leisurely comfort in the garden with the beautiful neckar flowing at our feet the quaint dilsberg looming beyond and the graceful towers and battlements of a couple of medieval castles called the swallow's nest and the brothers note one the seeker after information is referred to appendix e for our captain's legend of the swallow's nest and the brothers assisting the rugged scenery of a bend of the river down to our right we got to sea in season to make the eight-mile run to heidelberg before the night shut down we sailed by the hotel in the mellow glow of sunset and came splashing down with the mad current into the narrow passage between the dikes i believed i could shoot the bridge myself and i went to the forward triplet of logs and relieved the pilot of his pole and his responsibility we went tearing along in the most exhilarating way and i performed the delicate duties of my office very well indeed for a first attempt but perceiving presently that i really was going to shoot the bridge itself instead of the archway under it i judiciously stepped ashore the next moment i had my long coveted desire i saw a raft wrecked 
It hit the pier in the center, and went all to smash and scatteration like a box of matches struck by lightning. I was the only one of our party who saw this grand sight. The others were attitudinizing, for the benefit of the long rank of young ladies who were promenading on the bank, and so they lost it. But I helped to fish them out of the water down below the bridge, and then described it to them as well as I could. They were not interested, though. They said they were wet and felt ridiculous, and did not care anything for descriptions of scenery. The young ladies and other people crowded around and showed a great deal of sympathy, but that did not help matters, for my friends said they did not want sympathy, they wanted a back alley and solitude. End of chapter 19